So as Zena alluded to in our prayer, we are wrapping up our, finishing up our Lenten journey that we have been on over the last several weeks as we have been reading together through the Gospel of Luke, what we have referred to as the Gospel of Nobodies, because what we see on just about every page in Luke's Gospel is this compassion, this concern, this care for the littlest, the least among us that Jesus has this propensity to care the most for those that the society considers to be the least. And here we are today in the very last part of Luke, in fact, the last few verses of the last chapter of Luke. Now, I hope that you have been reading along with us over the last several weeks. I know many of you have. When we first put this together, when we thought of this idea of having the entire congregation read together, our hope was that something special would happen, that there would be this, this sense of, of meaning, something powerful could happen when a community of faith would all read together and, and look closely at what it all meant, not just back then, but what it all means now. And I think that has proved to be true for us as a congregation. I can't tell you how many people have told me how much they have enjoyed, how meaningful they have found it to be. So as a clergy staff, we met a couple of weeks ago and started thinking about what we might do next. And we came up with some good ideas of what we will read together. You'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. But for now, this morning, we're looking at the earliest disciples and what they might have thought, what they might have first, uh, what they might have felt on that first Easter, immediately upon finding the tomb was empty. Now, it might not be a surprise to you, but joy and jubilation were not the immediate response. There was no cartwheels down the aisle, there was none of that, but rather there was discouragement and disbelief. And so where we pick up this morning, the story is on the Easter, the evening of that first Easter when two of the followers of Jesus had been walking with someone on the road. They were headed back to Emmaus, leaving Jerusalem, headed back to Emmaus, and someone sort of interrupts their conversation and joins them on the way, only later to discover that it was indeed Jesus himself. And as those two followers of Jesus go and find the other 11 disciples, they began to tell them the story of what they had just experienced on this Emmaus road. And then, suddenly, right there, Jesus appears to all of them. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. Our scripture is from the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke verses 36 through 40 and 46 through 49. Here begins the reading. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet and see that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. So I think for us to fully understand, to completely comprehend what's going on in this immediate aftermath of that very first Easter, in this wild and crazy assertion that he'd been risen from the dead, I think it's important for us to look at some of the contextual and historical backdrop of what was taking place in Jerusalem on that day nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, important for us to remember that they were all gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Passover. Now, Jesus and his disciples were there to celebrate that crucial holiday. It was the defining story of the Hebrew people. It was an annual celebration, a retelling, a remembering of the story of God's redeeming power when God offered salvation to his people when they were slaves in Egypt, when God, through Moses, pleads Pharaoh to let my people go. But Pharaoh understood that his entire economy was built upon the backs of those slaves, those servants, and so he refused. And so, immediately following that, there is this series of plagues that falls upon the people of Egypt until each one getting a little bit worse than the last, until even death itself. Only then, only then did Pharaoh get the idea and relent, and hundreds of thousands of people were freed, and they experienced God's salvation. Now, the Hebrew people were spared of that death that came as the final of the plagues, because they were told to spread the blood of a sacrificed lamb upon their door frames. So that when death descended upon the people of Egypt, it would pass over those houses upon which there was blood of the lamb. And so these people, these Israelites, had received redemption and salvation, not just from slavery, but now also from death. And so this event, this Passover, was their defining story. It was, it was what they would come together every year in Jerusalem to retell and to remember that story that God will provide, that, that God will lead no matter how hopeless things feel, that God will be faithful no matter what. Now, Fast forward 1,200, 1,300 years later to Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. And it was the week of Passover, what we now refer to as Christians as Holy Week to the people of Israel is the Passover. And while scholars still somewhat debate and argue about just how many people would gather at that time, it's commonly believed that the population of Jerusalem would swell from probably less than about 100,000, which was the, the regular population at that time, to many times more than that. In fact, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, estimated that over a million people would have been gathered together to celebrate that Passover. Now, Jerusalem was a fairly small town, probably only about a square mile. And so what we need to understand, what we need to 
see with our mind's eyes that Jerusalem during Passover would have been absolutely overrun with people. There would have been people everywhere. And so when we think of that and look at the events of Holy Week, most importantly, the crucifixion of Jesus, which would have been a public spectacle on a hill, there would have been tens if not hundreds of thousands of people that would have walked by and seen this man with the sign above his head, the king of the Jews, that they would have seen that. Remember that they would place crucified people just outside of the city gates so that anybody that would walk by would see this is what happens when you betray Rome. And so all of these people would have seen They would have seen him die. They would have seen his dead body come off that cross, which only leads us to believe that on that Sunday morning when word begins to spread, as inevitably would when you have that many people in that small of a place, when the word begins to spread that the tomb was empty, that his body was gone, that it's probably going to be met with categorical disbelief because so many people had seen him die. Jesus? You're trying to tell me that Jesus, the guy that me and 20,000 of my fans, friends all saw die, he's the one that's alive? you got to be kidding me. You believe that? i got a bridge in Sinai to sell you. So you can imagine the dismissive disbelief that word of his resurrection would have been met with. Now, that's just the bystanders. There's just the people that had been coming in, the pilgrims that had gathered together in Jerusalem, the ones that had seen pass by. Those are just those folks. You can imagine, you can imagine that those that had been following Jesus, what they must have been feeling, how they must have been so disappointed, how discouraged they must have felt. This was not how they thought things were going to turn out. Those that followed him, those that were healed by him, those that had been drawn in by his teaching, the thousands of people, they would have been stunned that his life would have been snuffed out in this way. Think of the night shift shepherds that we talked about a few weeks ago who never got invited to anything, yet they were the honored guests on the night of his birth, invited by an angelic choir. Do you think, do you think that they might have followed his life in his ministry, to see what might come of this one. And the despised and the dejected, those that had been healed, the sick that had come to him on cots and walked away on their own, the blind people that had been able to see, those that had been plagued by demons that were now fully functional human adults, the tax collectors and the prostitutes that were, that were disdained and ignored by everybody. I wonder how they felt I wonder how they felt when the only one who had ever treated them as human was crucified. And now, and now to make matters worse, to add insult to injury, the word comes that his body's not in the tomb. What kind of a cruel hoax must this have been? The Romans, the religious leaders of the day, what are they trying to pull? Just pouring salt in our wounds. And what about... What about those disciples, those that had been following him for the last three years, that had left everything in their life, given it all up in order to follow this one? They were the ones that were there, standing at the foot of the cross when he was killed. 
They were the ones that had helped pull his body off the cross. They had seen with their own eyes his body put into the tomb. And now on Sunday morning, they've come back to prepare his body for a a proper burial, only to discover that the stone has been rolled away. Do you remember what we read last week? That it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women who told this to his apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. You see, friends, there, that is the best picture of those closest to Jesus on that first Easter. In the immediate aftermath, they were filled not with joy and celebration, but with disbelief, and they were racked with discouragement. They must have been wondering, what next? Even those closest to Jesus that first Easter weren't filled with joy and celebration, but with doubt and disbelief. He told them, he tried to tell them that this was going to be how it all go down, but things still didn't turn out the way that they had envisioned. Now, I suspect that we all probably knows what that feels like, that we all have some sort of an idea of what it feels like when things don't quite turn out the way that we want them to, the way that they're supposed to. I think that we all know what that's like. And we had that dream school, that place that we wanted to go, but didn't get accepted. That job that we applied for, that we thought that we thought was perfect for us, and we were perfect for them, and we applied, and they chose to go a different direction. We were so disappointed. That marriage that we thought at the beginning was for better or for worse turned out to be not for long. That company that we had given so much of our life to, the one that we thought that we would retire from, makes the sad decision to reorganize. And we find ourselves on the outside looking in. Or when we're sitting in the waiting room and the doctor calls us in and we can see by the look on her face before the words are even formed by her mouth that the cancer is back. We know disappointment. We know discouragement. We know what it's like when things don't turn out the way that we want them to. You see, I think part of what Luke wants us to see in the disbelief and the discouragement of those closest to Jesus on that first Easter, what Luke wants us to see in them is us. To see ourselves when things don't go the way that they think they should. When we're disappointed in God because God didn't force the outcome that we wanted. That we thought would be best. The outcome that we would have chosen. I think we're meant to see ourselves in those disciples. But then Luke sort of shifts the lens of the camera. Takes us to another scene in another city. And it's here that we see that that discouragement, that disbelief, they're not going to stop Easter from demonstrating its full power and potential. Luke takes us to the very first people to see the resurrected Jesus, to see that he is indeed alive and well and characteristic to Luke. God bless Luke. The first people that Jesus shows his resurrected self to, to show that he is indeed alive and well, they're not the 
those closest to Jesus, those that have been spending the last three and a half years. But it's two guys. Two guys that aren't mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Just these few verses right there in the middle of chapter 24. Two guys that we know nothing about. All we know, all we know is that one of them is named Cleopas. The other one, we don't even know his name. We know nothing about these guys. They are just likely some of the thousands that had come to put some measure of faith in Jesus. But yet it is to these two low-profile followers as they're walking back home to Emmaus that Jesus makes his first appearance. He just walks up and joins their conversation. They don't even recognize him, which leads me to think that he probably, they probably weren't all that close to Jesus. They were probably just part of those thousands and thousands of people. Maybe they were there when he was feeding thousands of them, sitting in the back saying, who is that guy that's feeding us all? We're so hungry. Well, they're trying to make sense of what had gone down, and Jesus interrupts their conversation, reminds them that these were the things that were supposed to happen. Do you remember? Do you remember he said that the Messiah should suffer and die and that three days later he'd be raised. Do you remember when he told you that? They still didn't get it. It's not until they arrive, till they sit down to eat. Before you go, before you go, have a, have a bite to eat with us. A little nourishment for the journey. And when they sit down and they gather around the table and he takes a loaf of bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them that all of a sudden in that moment they see that's Jesus. It's Jesus. That's who we've been walking with. Now I always find it interesting, fascinating that Jesus went to them first. Not to the 11. Not to the Pharisees, which... Honestly, that's where I would have gone first, right? <laughs> I win, right? That's where I would have gone first, but not Jesus. He goes to these relative nobodies, the average run-of-the-mill followers, and he says to them, I don't care what society feels about you. I don't care how insignificant or unimportant you feel because you are somebody, because you are my child and I have come to bring you salvation. I've come to bring you forgiveness. I have come to bring you life. You see, the defining story of Easter is that your life is not futile, that your failures are not final. In this gospel of nobodies, the first people that Jesus appears to are a couple of low-profile, ordinary followers of Jesus who were overwhelmed with disbelief and discouragement, not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And you're probably wondering, why? Why? Well, the obvious answer, Russ, of course, is because we've been reading the gospel of nobodies over the last several weeks, and we know that this is... This is how it does. This is how it goes in Luke's gospel. He's always looking out for the little, the lost, and the least. That's the obvious answer. And of course, oftentimes the obvious answer is oftentimes the right one. But I also think that there's something more here. I think that in this 
final paragraph of his gospel that Luke has a bigger reason why he made these all but anonymous people the first to whom the resurrected Jesus appears. You see, it wasn't going to be the most high-profile few who were going to carry out the message, to carry that message forward. No, it's not going to be them. Now, if we look to the book of Acts, which is the sequel to Luke's gospel, we see that the church is born, and, and sure enough, it's the disciples turned apostle that provide the leadership and the structure, and they help. But what we'll see over and over and over again is that the expansion of Easter's good news, it spread like wildfire throughout the world's, the, the known world, mostly on the back of the people that sat in the pews, not the ones preaching from the pulpit. You see that relay of a defining story that brings life out of death, hope out of despair, happened because everyday ordinary people saw the story, they heard the story, they saw it in one another, they saw it lived out in each other's lives. And Luke wants us to see that that the first people that he appeared to, well, yeah, we heard that Jesus does appear next to the disbelieving Disciples turned apostles. But did you hear what their reaction was? They were terrified. They thought that they were seeing a ghost. But then Jesus reminded them of what the scriptures had said, how the Messiah was to suffer and rise, that, that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, Jesus said, beginning from right here in Jerusalem. And then he said this, and then he said this, you are my witnesses to these things. You are my witnesses to these things. In other words, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, 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 you are my witnesses to these things. You have a role to play. Yes, he was talking to his inner circle, but you know now that he wasn't just talking to them, that he was talking to everyone, and you know this because you know to whose house he went first, to these everyday, unknown, anonymous disciples, not the ones with all the answers, not the ones that had been there day after day that had everything figured out and buttoned up and locked down, no, those with questions with doubts, those that sometimes got discouraged. You. Why? Because Luke intends for you and I, for every single one of us, to find ourselves in this story. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says. You see, the broad sharing of Easter's defining story is that there is this God that loves relentlessly, who forgives comprehensively, that has the power to save and to redeem not only our lives, but now even our deaths, that comes to us and says that the worst thing is never the last thing. This story is told to the ordinary lives of everyday disciples. People like you, people like me, 
And so church, as we wrap up Luke's gospel, in these last few lines, Jesus wants us to know that our lives, our love, our witness, our forgiveness, that we, we are now the gospel of nobodies. That we are to convey to every nobody that they are somebody, not because we says so, but because God says so. You see, that, that is the defining story of Luke. That is the defining story of Easter. And you, says Jesus, you are to be my witnesses. You are to tell that story. You are to embody that story. You are to live that story. You. You.